everyone. I hope you're really well this week. Welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky, where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer, and more alive, whatever that looks like for you. So maybe this podcast is going to inspire you to look at your health and self-care. Maybe it's thinking about your career and making work work for you. Maybe it's looking at your relationships or your relationship with yourself and finally addressing that inner critic and making a commitment to being kinder to yourself. So I chat to all sorts of well-being experts and game changers to help you become your healthiest, happiest and most alive version of you because that is what I think is the most inspiring thing to become for our children. Hi everyone and welcome back to this first episode of the new season of the Motherkind podcast. I hope you've all had a lovely summer. I know I have, but I've also really missed recording this podcast. I have to say, I just absolutely love it and I have missed it. Lots of you have been getting in touch saying that you've been listening to past episodes over the summer and how much you've enjoyed that. And I've loved hearing from you all, but I am super excited that we have a new episode today. It is with Sarah Wilson, who you have probably heard of. She is a former journalist. She was the editor of the Australian Cosmopolitan and the founder of I Quit Sugar, which she is probably most famous for. She's also someone who has anxiety and bipolar that was diagnosed when she was just 21. So this conversation revolves around her international bestseller called First We Make the Beast Beautiful. And in the book and in this conversation, she really encourages us to reframe anxiety and to think about it in quite a different way than many of us do and much of society does. So we talk about how anxiety is actually an evolutionary process and how many of the preeminent leaders in history have had anxiety. She talks about how she handles her anxiety both day to day and also what she does when she has an anxiety attack. And she goes into lots of detail here and I know I found it really helpful and I hope you will too. And of course, she shares the one gift that she would give to all mums. So here's the episode, I hope you really enjoy it. Sarah was in Australia when we recorded this episode so we did it over Skype and I'm really struggling to find a way to get high quality Skype recordings because you will notice in this episode there's a little bit where she comes and goes a little bit the volumes go up and down I am really sorry about that I wish that I could find a way that I could do these Skype recordings and the audio would sound as brilliant as it does when I'm sat with someone so if anyone has any tips please do email me I'm going to do some research on it too but I hope you don't find that too frustrating and I hope that you can listen beyond the odd glitch to her message I also just wanted to let you know that I have created a download for you so lots of you got in touch asking if I could put in one place many of the tips and advice that I talk about and my guests talk about 
about some simple ways that we can reconnect to us if we're feeling lost, overwhelmed, anxious even, or some of the ways that we can just reconnect and find that calm, peaceful space again. So I've put 10 of my absolute favorite tools that I've learned from my own experience, from coaching clients and from my podcast guests. And I've put it all into a download for you. So if you just pop onto my website, motherkind.co, just.co, no UK, and pop your email in, you'll see it there. It's on a box on the homepage. I'll send you that download. And lots of you have been loving it and sharing how you've been getting on with those tools. So thank you for that. And here's the episode. As ever, if you enjoyed it, please do share it with your friends. I would love a review on iTunes. And here it is. So I wanted to ask you about the title of the book, which is First Make the Beast beautiful because it's not often that you hear anxiety and beautiful in the same Mm. sentence and it's a Chinese proverb isn't it can you explain how that title reflects the philosophy of the book and what you've come to believe about anxiety yeah well I actually came across that Chinese proverb and it's sort of slight twist on it when I was about 21 and I was reading a book by K. Jamison Radfield about bipolar and I was diagnosed with bipolar at 21 when I was living in the states I was studying appropriately philosophy of the universe we were studying quantum physics and black hole theory that's when I decided to really lose it and had my first really serious manic episode and I came across this book and it really resonated with me and stuck with me for the next I guess 25 years prior to the sort of the 1980s which is when anxiety first entered the DSM it was accepted that a lot of writers and poets and scientists had these conditions. Winston Churchill was very openly mad in many ways, but he was respected as having a certain type of skill set and sensibility and intensity that enabled him to be an incredible wartime leader. And in fact, research found that the best wartime leaders displayed, in most cases, bipolar conditions or bipolar behaviour. So I sort of went back through history, noticed that this was the case, and there was a number of other studies that really pointed to the fact that a certain percentage of the population has these conditions for a really good reason, and that is to A, keep us safe, so heightened sensitivity to smells and poisons and all of that kind of thing served a purpose throughout our history, but also to further us, to see us kind of reach beyond ourselves. And I've always sort of made a gag, but I think it explains it quite well, that I bet it was the bipolar or the highly anxious person that went over the hill, discovered the, the hill that everyone else was too scared to go over, went over there, came back and went, hey, guys, they've invented this thing called the wheel over there. We should get onto it, you know. So I realised it serves an evolutionary purpose and without it, humans wouldn't be what we are today. Human race wouldn't have progressed as we have. And when you start to reframe it through that lens, you can then start to treat it in a different way, not as something that's got to be a but something that can be modulated so it doesn't swing out of control and can be used as what I call a superpower, to use it to guide you to right and wrong, to make better decisions, to be more creative and so on. Such an interesting way of looking at it. It's quite a different way of looking at it, as you say, because I think so often people want to cure themselves of anxiety or get rid of anxiety. And you're saying the exact opposite, isn't it? Which is to 
accept it and in a way welcome yeah. it. Yeah, so I go beyond just living with anxiety. It's more about thriving with anxiety. And that's not to accept it into oblivion, to kind of pretend it's not there. There's responsibilities that come with anxiety. And I think sometimes the over-medicalization of it and the over-stigmatization of it actually prevents people from rising to their best selves and also being responsible. You might remember, Zoe, in the book I actually talk about when you've got a mental disorder, and I use it quote unquote, you know, it's sort of like carrying a shallow bowl of water around for the rest of your life, right? And I think this probably plays into any parents thinking with their own anxiety. You've got to kind of keep that bowl of water as stable as possible so that you don't start to sway and then the water starts to slosh around and it spills all over everybody and then you spend all your energy going back to the tap or the source to fill it back up again. I think when you have a condition, whether it's bipolar, social anxiety and so on, it comes with a kind of non-negotiable responsibility to try to keep things as stable as possible and then from there to maximise your anxiety in such a way that it furthers us all, you know, benefits us all rather than causes damage. Very different way of looking at it. And that's not to say that the medical model hasn't got its place, you know. Medication is something that I think a lot of people need and I'm really honest in the book, as you know, about the fact that even in the writing of the book I went on and off medication and went to various psychiatrists and had to get help. And I'll need that for the rest of my life. But again, part of the responsibility, know when you've got to go and seek help and to know when it's time to go out on your own and actually build resilience and work on other skill sets that can help you modulate and thrive with your anxiety. And you've lived with this bowl, and I love that analogy, you've lived with this bowl for a long, long, long time, and you talk about that in the book. What have you found to be, for you, I know everyone is different, but for you, what have you found to be the most effective things in your toolbox to help you keep that level, as you say? I tend to try to find things that are free and accessible and don't require three stages to get there. The biggest thing is actually to if you can, stop reaching outwards to other people because I think that that's part of our consumer culture and it's also part of the anxious condition there because you spend all your energy grasping outwards instead of sitting calmly, which we all know the answer is when you can sit comfortably with yourself. Anxiety is a fleeing from a sense of self. So there's two sort of ways to deal with anxiety. Firstly, day-to-day maintenance to ensure you don't get wobbly with the bowl of water. And then, of course, there's practices for when you're in a bit of a full-blown anxiety attack. So on a day-to-day basis, one of the most effective things is to have a morning routine. Now, the premise behind that is that the part of your brain that actually helps us make decisions, deciding between, you know, something as basic as a muffin for breakfast or avocado on toast, you know, that part of the brain controls anxiety, the flight or fight mechanism. Mm-hmm. They've worked in a very old part of the brain at the same time, not long after we kind of became vertical as human beings. When we tax one part of that brain, it basically really overtaxes the other part. So when we make too many decisions, we become anxious. So the best thing we can do is get rid of as many decisions as possible so we don't use up that part. I think many of you listening have probably heard of how Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and even Barack Obama wear the same outfit every single day. They also eat the same boring breakfast every day. And I actually outlined this in the book, routinize you help modulate the rest of the day. So for me, I exercise in the morning and that really makes a difference. 
if I'm traveling or I'm super busy or I have to first thing in the morning if you're a parent and you've got school routines that you've got to work around, you've just got to find a way to do it. And it really is important. The other thing that's really backed by science, of course, is meditation. And I probably don't need to go into detail there because I'm sure you've had great speakers talking about the benefits of meditation. The science is all there. The other thing that I find that has the most compelling science behind it and also works for me is walking. Now, it sounds really boring because, you know, you sort of want something a little bit more glamorous than that, something that you can actually go and buy tangibly. But the most compelling science, as I say, in terms of what can make a difference with anxiety is in and around walking. And again, the walking mechanism in our brain is sort of intertwined with the part that controls our anxiety. And when we walk, it actually shuts down the anxious mechanism. And it's as simple as just tying on a pair of shoes when you get anxious and getting out the door. And if you've got kids, it's killing a few birds with one stone, right? You know, putting your kid in the pram and just walk. And you know that that actually has a benefit for your child as well. The two of you are probably anxious at the same time because you've been stuck in the house, you know, together in the pain of it all. My advice is just to get out the door and walk. And if you can get into nature, the impact and the benefits are even greater. So about 40,000 studies have been done on the benefits of walking and anxiety. It really does work and it's so accessible. You don't have to go through about three steps to get to the benefits. It's immediate. I think what's so great about that, as you say, is as mums of children at any age, children love walking too. Well, generally they do in the buggy. And you know why? It's for exactly the same reason. It's doing the same stuff in their little brains as it's doing in our brains. It is actually modulating the flight or fight mechanism. It actually is releasing a hell of a lot of tension. And so buildup of anxiety is dissipated through walking. And there's a whole range of other things that it does. It releases particular hormones that activate the receptor cells. There's a whole range of complex stuff. And I explained some of it in the book, but you're right. Kids love it as well. Mm, so powerful and what I love about those things that you've talked about all of them is as you say they are free they are relatively easy and they're really accessible and what I'll just say to you Zoe is like I have become particularly hyper aware of anything that does cost a lot of money because I'll just give a little bit of an example. Anxiety, as I mentioned, entered the DSM, that diagnostic tool, which basically makes a mental disorder a mental disorder. Without it, it's just something nebulous. So that ended in 1980. Do you know what? It was one year after one of the major drug companies, the major pharmaceutical companies, invented the first anti-anxiety drug. Now, is it a coincidence? No, it's not. Essentially, we have overstigmatization and a lot of disordered speak around these conditions when there's a vested financial interest. And quite often, when I can tell you now what's happened in the last four or five years, is they've found that science it's all that chemical imbalance science about serotonin, not having enough serotonin in the brain, that is a complete furphy. There is absolutely no sound science behind it. But of course, pre-internet, it was very difficult to actually establish that there was no sound science. And these drug companies came out and made us believe that they had a solution and then they created the problem. So I get very suspicious of anything that costs a lot of money, you know, (laughs) especially when there's really simple solutions that have existed for the duration of the human experience. 
I think that's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? And we know now, of course, that the majority of serotonin is made in the gut. It's nothing to do with absolutely. the brain chemistry. You're absolutely right. And some of the most compelling science around things that you can take, either tablets or supplements for anxiety, are to do with gut health, which, again, is a freebie. If you eat a good diet with enough roughage and, of course, no sugar, what do you know? It will affect your anxiety. So, yes, you're absolutely right. It's all in the gut now. They say that inflammation in the gut basically works its way up into the brain. And I like this sort of phrase, fire in the gut or inflammation in the gut is fire in the brain. We now view anxiety in many of these conditions as an inflammatory disease, which I think is just shifts things, right? Massively, because it's empowering, because we can do something about that. Absolutely. Yep. So those are your maintenance tools. And I'm thinking now of the mum who's listening to this, who might be in full-blown anxiety. She might be struggling to get out the house. Her mind might be crashing with fears about herself and her children. She's in an acute state. And I know from the book, you've been there many times. What are some of the things that you have done or you've researched that can help someone who is in that really heightened, scary place with their anxiety or or any of those disorders as we sort of label them with inverted commas? Yeah, look, there's a few things. One thing I will flag is that some of those calming down techniques just don't work when you're in that state. So give yourself a break. You know, when you're in a full-blown anxiety spiral, panic attack, it's a bridge too far to go and sit quietly and think of a mantra. So other techniques are required as sort of circuit breakers. There's a couple of things, and I'll just rattle off a bunch of them, and they may or may not resonate. So one thing I do is excitement and anxiety trigger the same parts of the brain. Sometimes I basically say to myself, I choose to see this as excitement. And even that kind of rephrasing can actually be a bit of a circuit breaker. If I realize that what's happening in my brain is a chemical reaction that I can choose to see as excitement. Now, if you're in a really bad way, you're not going to see it as excitement. But sometimes it genuinely is. And I think things like stage fright or really kind of fair enough things that are scary, sometimes they are excitement, you know. So I find that that helps. Another thing I do is I write out my anxiety. So the actual process of slowing my thoughts down enough to write on pen on paper, and I'll be in the middle of New York and I'll have my anxiety attack and I will go and I'll sit at a cafe and ask for a serviette and a pen and I'll write on the serviette. I write out my anxiety. And what that does is it actually slows your thoughts down to the same pace as discerning thought. And so you can piece out your thoughts and slow them down through that practice. It's a little bit like walking, but it's a bit more intimate. You're really engaging with those rapid fire thoughts that are just kind of swirling around in your brain. Another thing that I think a lot of people find challenging in relationships is when other people try to help. And I do this with my loved ones and I've, you know, fortunately written a book about it. So they've all read the book and I didn't actually have to speak to them one-on-one. But if you've got a husband in your life or a boyfriend or a good friend and they genuinely want to help you when you're in one of these spaces, what I find helps if you can explain to them that when you're in a horrible, anxious place, you can't make decisions, as I explained before. The best thing that somebody can do to help you is to actually make decisions for you. So anyone listening, you probably know what it's like when you're really anxious and someone comes up to you and goes, oh, what can I do? What would you like to do? Shall we go to dinner? Shall I make you chicken or shall I make you, you know, vegetarian omelette? 
You can't answer and it actually makes it worse. What actually makes it better is if somebody can say to you, I can see you're in a bad way. I'm going to make dinner. We're going to eat it at 6.30. I'm going to make chicken because I know that we both like it. Please just sit there and watch me while I'm doing it. Sometimes that in itself is enough just to break the circuit. The third and final thing that's really effective to keep in mind, especially if you tend to have panic attacks, try to remember, even if you have to write it on a piece of paper where you're going to see it when you're in one of these places, try to write it down on a piece of paper. And what you write to yourself is a panic attack only lasts 20 to 30 minutes. That's fact. If you can do anxiety once and not get anxious about being anxious and then being anxious about being anxious about being anxious, you can actually stop that horrible anxious spiral, which is the worst thing about anxiety, right? Mm. So, If you can say to yourself, I can endure 20 minutes of this, it will actually pass and you will emerge out the other side. So I find that really effective as well. The analogy that's coming to me with that is that most mums have been through labour or early labour. Yes, we all know it ends. Exactly. (laughs) And I think a lot of mums have the experience, I know I do, of I can get through this, you know, 20 minutes so I think that's an incredible superpower to come back to your phrase for mums to lean on. Yeah, it? if you, if it's a very good um, parallel because I think that the pain of childbirth and unfortunately, and I say this really genuinely, unfortunately I haven't had the privilege of experiencing it, but I've had incredible pain in other respects. It actually does take you to a place where you learn how deep your resilience can be. And I think that's a really good point, Zoe, is we all need to draw on those moments. And as we get older and older, we actually have more of those moments to draw on. And we realize the human spirit can endure. We just got to try to remind ourselves that it will end if we pass through it and don't get ourselves stuck into that cycle where we think that we should be doing it better because that anxiety then fuels a further anxiety spiral that somehow we shouldn't be in this pain. Pain is part of the human existence, right? And childbirth, we come out screaming. We scream and we're in pain when we're giving birth, you know, and we really don't like the idea of dying either. So I kind of often remind myself of that. What makes me think that this anxiety is wrong? It's just part of my human experience and I can choose to do it once and not get anxious about my anxiety. I love that phrase you use and you use it a lot in the book, which is anxious about being anxious And I think we see that so much, don't we, is the anxiety, the feelings rise and then we begin to panic about the feelings and then that's layering on the panic upon panic, isn't it? That's right, yeah. And we can see where that ends up and we can absolutely choose to break that part of the circuit. We can't break the initial anxiety, all right? That happens. And as I say in the book, sometimes I just have anxiety in my bones, you know, And if you don't fight it, if you don't berate yourself for thinking that you should be in any other state right in that moment, then it actually makes it just one layer to get through. And you do get through it. Yeah. One of my favourite phrases is what we resist persists. Persists, absolutely. Yeah, because I I can always remember that in a moment where I'm trying to resist something. I think, God, the more I push this away, the stronger it's going to come back. And that's helped me a lot of times. Absolutely. Okay, so we're coming to the end. And I wanted to ask you, I ask everyone at the end the same question, which is if you could give all the mums in the world just one gift, what would it be and why? 
Oh, gosh, that's a really big one. Well, first of all, I'd say for whatever it's worth, I'd say a big thank you for your service to humanity. That would be for whatever that's worth, if that's seen as a gift, you know, a thank you from me. The second thing I would say, and this resonates with me, I think it was Freud who first adopted this way of sort of looking at things, but I think, or maybe it was Jung, but a number of different beautiful spiritual thinkers have carried it on. The best thing that you can do for a child is to basically live your own life, to live the fullest life that you can live so that your child doesn't have to try to then live out your unfulfilled life. And so I think the greatest gift that maybe I could remind any mother out there is that you are best off living your full life. And I think that that's something that, you know, the mothers in my life, sometimes they sacrifice that because they think they're doing the best thing by their child. And sometimes it's nice to have a reminder that, well, living a full life is going to be the best thing for your child and all involved. And I think that that's what humanity needs at the moment. We need to see more people living their fullest, fullest life. If that can be seen as a beautiful invitation for anyone who's not feeling that way at the moment, then I do hope that can resonate. Well, it will because that's really the premise that motherkind is sat up on. So yeah, there's beautiful, okay, beautiful synchronicity with Motherkind and with your gift. So thank you for sharing that and for reminding everyone of that. And thank you. I mean, I've learned so much from chatting with you. And I think in a short space of time, you've given us so much knowledge and tips and advice. So thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends that they might benefit from what we were chatting about, then just tag them in on Instagram. My bio will include the link to the podcast so they can find it really easily from there. People often tell me they're desperate to share it with their friends. So if that's you, then please do. I feel like the guests that we have on the podcast, their wisdom just deserves to be heard far and wide. So help me make that happen. I'd be very grateful. And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my program, which is a three-month program called Reconnect to You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.